You are listening to the Inclusive Classroom series for teachers and educators. Inclusion Ed provides evidence-based, research-informed teaching practices and tools to support diverse learners in inclusive classrooms. In this limited series, you'll learn about neurodiversity and anxiety in the classroom, foundation practices for early career teachers, and how to positively engage families. Hello everyone, I'm Nicole Torres, former primary teacher and now education community coordinator at Autism CRC and your co-host for today's webinar. I will be joined by Libby Sellers, who is a former secondary teacher and now education product manager at Autism CRC. I'd like to welcome you to our fourth webinar for the year, Foundation Practices for Early Career Teachers. This is the fourth of five webinars in our, in our inclusive classroom series. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we're all meeting today, which for me is the Turrbal and Jagera peoples of Mianjin and recognize their connection to country. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations people who are with us today. If you're looking for a space where you can find evidence-based best practice for teaching, look no further than inclusioned.edu.au. If you haven't already registered and checked out our practices and resources, you can register for free to access the full range of resources and information. So today we'll be discussing foundation practices for early career teachers. It's everything you need to know when first starting out in your career, uh, teaching career. Libby and I have a combined 35 years experience in the classroom and a wealth of knowledge about inclusive practice. So let me hand you over to Libby to get into it. Thanks, Nick. So we're here today from Inclusion Ed, and I wanted to talk a bit about who we are before we dive into inclusion and inclusive practice. An initiative of Autism CRC, Inclusion Ed is more than just a website. Inclusion Ed is a professional learning platform and national community of practice. We take evidence-based research and translate it into teaching practices and whole of school strategies. We have goal-setting tools and structured guidance on how to support your diverse learners. Since its launch in May 2020, InclusionEd has reached over 55,000 unique vis visitors and almost 6,000 registered users. It's co-designed with teachers for teachers. We have been and continue to go through an extensive co-design process that has engaged over 200 educators to date. Inclusion Ed is aligned with the Universal Design for Learning Framework to help teachers implement these evidence-based and research-informed strategies for their whole classroom, supporting every lead, uh, learner regardless of diagnosis. So here's what you'll find in Inclusion Ed. To support teachers and schools, the practices with Inclusion Ed are divided into seven categories. Each contains a number of practices to assist teachers to support their diverse learners. We've also added a school strategies category, which contains such topics as the disability standards and working with partners to help schools with the whole of school policy for inclusion. In terms of our content for teachers, the practices provide clear summary, year levels and how they help teachers and students, how-to guides with steps to implement evidence-based strategies, instructional videos, PDF facts and tip sheets, word templates, handouts, and research summaries. So inclusion and inclusive education are what we're really passionate about. 
But what is it exactly? Let's explore. Inclusive classrooms utilize the principles of universal design for learning and ensure that we offer support for those who need it. Help our students feel a sense of belonging, increase engagement in learning and school activities, and ensure that the students can feel included school-wide. Inclusive practice is everywhere in society and it can support those with specific needs, but also others dependent on circumstances. For example, closed captions on TV can benefit those with hearing impairments, but also anyone who is in a noisy environment. Public transport also has lots of great examples like hearing sound systems and those visual, tactile and oral cues at pedestrian crossings. So as you can see, inclusive practice supports everyone in society. So that's inclusion in the broader sense. But when it comes to education, what is inclusive practice? And on the flip side, what is not inclusive practice? Inclusive classrooms are more than just ensuring we include our students in the learning by modifying activities to suit them. It's about recognizing, planning, and adjusting for the diverse learning needs of all your students and providing supports and scaffolds that benefit all students. This means ensuring all students can participate fully in learning and that every student has what they need to be able to learn best. Like in this picture, it's not about learning equality where everyone gets the same resources. It's about learning equity, where each student has different needs and circumstances and we allocate the exact resources and opportunities needed to reach an equal outcome. We are working towards a place of liberation where barriers are removed for all. So inclusive practice is not about excluding a student based on their abilities or giving a student a separate special curriculum instead of adjusting the core curriculum. We want all students to have equitable learning outcomes and be liberated from learning barriers. So how, I want you to think for a moment to think about your own preferences for learning. When you had a big essay to complete or a large picture that needed your undivided attention, would you move to work in a busy cafe like in picture one? Or would you find a quiet space to concentrate like in picture two? Everyone has their own preferences. And as we as adults have the power to make those choices. These might even change depending on the day, the environment, or even how tired and stressed we are. So why is it that we think all children in our classroom will have exactly the same preference? Why wouldn't there be some students who prefer absolute silence or others who prefer listening to music to concentrate? We all have our own sensory preferences. So you can really help your students by offering learning environments which can be flexible to their needs. So how can we be inclusive for all the different learning preferences in the classroom? Let's dig into our top foundational teaching practices for primary and secondary school that will help transform your class into an inclusive learning environment. These have all been backed by research and proven to be effective. Some of them you may already be familiar with. You may already be implementing with your own, in your own classroom, but there may be minor tweaks needed to ensure inclusive practice. Nick and I have the same top three practices 
but we'll go through how these differ in the primary and secondary environments. Then we'll discuss another two each that we think are the most important for you to know. We'll talk you through the practice and give you some tips and strategies to pop into your own teaching toolbox. So I'm going to hand over to Nick and let's dive in. Thanks, Libby. So our first foundational teaching practice is establishing classroom rules. These might seem like a bit of a no-brainer, but there is a certain way you can do it to make sure it is more inclusive. The beauty of classroom rules is that it creates boundaries for your students to learn within, which eases anxiety and maintains a positive working environment. Students understand what is expected of them and will work within that framework. So how do you do it? The idea is to create three to five measurable and observable statements. Three to five statements because if you have too many, it's harder to remember. And if you have too few, you're probably forgetting something along the way. And they need to be measurable and observable. If one of my rules is be nice to each other, well, what does that look like? How can I measure or observe that? Use concrete language so that it's easily understood by all of your students. Having student input also makes them feel really invested in the outcome. So have a whole of class session where you brainstorm the classroom rules. You can certainly direct where the conversation is going. So have a bit of a think of your own rules you'd like to implement beforehand, and that will help guide the process. Make sure you frame these positively. If I say, don't think of an elephant, what animal are you going to think of? Using don't statements usually has the opposite effect. So framing classroom rules positively makes your classroom a more positive place. So instead of a rule like no yelling, a more positive alternative would be speak quietly. Remember also that when you're referring a student to a rule, they may need a few seconds to orient themselves to the spoken word. So some students may need extra time when you're reminding them of these rules. And make sure you display them in an obvious place and refer to them whenever you think a student might be towing that line. I'll pass you back to Libby for the secondary perspective. So whether primary or secondary, classroom rules are important. They set the tone for the rest of the year and they help establish respect for both you and your students. Establishing rules is more than outlining and framing the rules for doing work, turning up for class on time, wearing the uniform correctly. Many of these are part of the whole of school rules. So when establishing your rules, consider the tone you want for your room, how you want to interact with your students and how you want them to interact with you as well as each other. Think about what works for your room and for you. It's also important to start the way you want to finish. If you start off with clear guidelines and expectations, it's easier to maintain that as you go through the year. Establishing secondary rules is about respect. Take the time to outline the behaviour and interactions you want to see in the classroom. As Nicole said earlier, rules or expectations also create frameworks for your students to learn in, which can ease, ease anxiety and help create a positive working environment. Students understand what you expect from them and what they can expect in return. So rather than rules, you might like to state your expectations. Expectations also provide a benchmark. They imply trust and confidence. As Nick said, it's always better to work with students to establish the rules and expectations. Some classes are going to have safety rules, such as science. These are non-negotiable, but make sure that you reiterate them. 
other rules and expectations can be developed with students. So take the time to discuss why they want the rule or expectation and what they think should be a consequence. Consider rules about responding to viewpoints and opinions rather than we won't shout out answers. You may use, we'll respect everyone's right to answer a question safely. This means if they're shouting over the top, they're breaching the expectations. If they ridicule or mock another student's responses, they're breaching the expectation. So my top tip, establish them in the first couple of lessons. Don't wait. Have three to five rules. If safety rules are separate, they're going to be maintained. Use positive language. Avoid don't statements. And be consistent. Don't create rules and expectations that are unreasonable or you just can't manage, so you're backed into a corner. And don't worry about the common sense rules and the school rules. They're already established. They're already in place and going to cover much of the bigger behaviours. Consider carefully the consequences and actions and make sure you display your rules or expectations in an obvious place. I always had the students write them in their diaries or in their notebooks or on the class one note page and refer to them when required. So I'm now going to hand over to Nick. So our second foundational practice is using routines and visual schedules. Setting these up at the beginning of the year is absolutely crucial to keep students on track with their learning. When used correctly, this practice will reduce student anxiety and decrease transition time between lessons, as well as needing fewer verbal prompts from you, which saves your teacher voice. So how do we achieve this practice? Consistency is key. Using a whole of class schedule that you go through every morning lets the entire class know what is coming up. You can have picture cards or just written words on the board, depending on your students' reading abilities. If you have students that are unable to process that length of time, they can have a visual schedule on their desk that shows a morning, middle and afternoon breakdown. That way everyone knows what's coming. It becomes a normal thing to check the day's activities first thing in the morning. You can explain any changes ahead of time, like if there's a special assembly on or if sport is canceled, so there are no surprise changes in the schedule. The other handy routine is to decide on an attention cue and stick to it. There are dozens out there. You can Google teacher attention cue to find lots of great ideas, um, you know, whether it's one hand raised and everyone must raise one hand to show attention or a call and response cue like all aboard and they say aye aye captain or you say ready to rock and the students say ready to roll in response. Have a bit of fun with it. Having a good attention cue can save your teacher voice and relay those expectations again. You will need to explicitly explain your choice of cue at the beginning of the year and remind the students when required, like, remember, when my hand is up, I need your eyes and your ears. I'm going to pass it back to Libby for the secondary perspective. Thanks, Nick. So routines and visual schedules are also important in the secondary context. Consistency, as Nick said, is key. Notifying of changes to what is happening in the lesson and changes to lesson location are important. Some students can get really stressed when they have a planned for lesson and that suddenly changed due to an assembly or a fire drill or some of the many other things that happen in schools. Think about planning out the unit and providing students with a high level unit breakdown lesson by lesson. This not only supports your own planning, 
but support students by showing them what's due and when and what you're working on. Providing some guidance around when drafts are due also helps students with planning and can help to prevent stress and anxiety with unforeseen deadlines. The unit plan can also provide high level information about what the class will be working on. You may like to consider a couple of buffer lessons in your planning to help mitigate lost time due to unforeseen events such as excursions for other subjects, assemblies, fire drills, etc. and go through this with the students. The other handy tip, as Nick said, Nick said, is to decide on an attention cue and stick to it. Nick mentioned some that you can use. I tended to use the location in the room. I move around the room a lot, but when I want attention, I go to a particular location in the room and raise my hand and ask for their attention. And I do this from year seven through to year 12. I have here a couple of examples. The one on the left is a class timetable. This has been color coded for easy identification of subjects. They can use a similar color code for their books or tabs in OneNote. The example on the right is the type of temp term planner that you could use. It's color coded to show when assignments and drafts are due. For my own kids, we color coded all their books. When they went to the locker, they could just grab the appropriate colored resources. And I did this actually for my own teaching and resources as well. So what I have here is an example of a lesson breakdown in secondary. There are lots of alternatives you can use. Using colour or symbols to indicate homework or assignment reminders is also helpful. And note that I've put the homework in blue to make it easily stand out so the students can see it. And I will now pass back to Nick. Thanks, Libby. Great to see those examples too. I think it really brings it all together. Now, this particular practice can require only small changes that have a really significant impact on learning outcomes. Students with sensory processing needs may experience overstimulation or understimulation with hearing, smell, taste, touch, and sound. Meeting students' sensory needs in the classroom can increase student focus and self-regulation of emotions while decreasing the possibility of sensory overwhelm or meltdown. We had a great discussion about this in our sensory needs webinar, so check out the recording on Inclusion Ed. The simplest way to find the best response to sensory needs is to just ask. Consult with the student, their families or carers and other specialists to find some easy and effective strategies to support your student when they have high sensory needs. Having a professional understanding of different types of sensory needs, as well as hypersensitive and hyposensitive responses, and the effect that these can have on learning outcomes will go a really long way to helping you understand how to respond to your students' sensory needs. And sometimes it just takes simple adjustments to the environment to have a really big impact, like putting covers over fluorescent lights or having noise cancelling headphones around for use when the ambient noise gets too high. There are so many things you can do to address sensory needs, which can really support a student. Uh, and we have a list of suggestions on this practice on our website, and I'll discuss a few a little bit later as well. I'm going to pass to Libby for the secondary perspective. So some of what I'm going to talk about overlaps into classroom organisation. In high school, you may not have your own room. You need to go to different rooms for different lessons. And this may mean different room layouts and organization and different impacts for your students. For students with sensory needs, this can be difficult. You may notice different behaviors from your students depending on the room they're in. 
working well in one room but distracted in another. Some of your students will be aware of how the different classroom environments impact them. You may see them move to the back of the room where there is more space or close to windows or away from them if they're particularly bright or move so they're not sitting directly under fluorescent lights. Other students may not be aware of how the environment impacts them. They may be the ones who groan and complain when you go to certain locations and the busyness of the library may actually impact their learning and ability to focus and manage the environment. For others, it may be the noise coming from the music room or the man arts room. Having a conversation with them about how they feel may help both you and them connect with what is happening and enable both of you to develop management strategies. Preparing for the library lesson, for example, with a clear action plan or finding a quiet area away from the noise or busyness can help. It may even be a case of allowing the student to sit quietly in another teacher's room or suitable location. If it is a particularly noisy or challenging environment, um, if you have different rooms for the same lesson, think about the structure of the lesson to best suit the layout of the room and the students. So think about how will that room impact their sensory experience? For example, the sound of pool on the floor, a noisy fan, bright lights or flickering lights. How can you enable students who need space to be more comfortable in the room? Of course, you may be able to change the room, but in the event that you can't, think about the seating and the organisation of the students. Set up a seating plan for the room configuration. Make sure you prepare your students for the lesson before, if they're moving, by reminding them that they're going to be in a different room, what work they'll be doing and the organisation of that room. Consider whether you can allow them to wear headphones or play soft music or wear a cap for the brightness, things that Nick suggested earlier. But make sure that you check with the school policy and how you and your students and the school can work together. You actually have more control than you may think, but it's really about listening and engaging with the students and planning your lessons to actually align with that environment. And just remember, you've got experienced colleagues to draw upon and ask questions and seek support. So I will hand back to Nick. Thanks, Libby. Um, I just wanted to address one of the questions that we had from the audience who uh, asked, what about sensory adjustments for students without special sensory needs? Um, not really wanting to listen to the Year 7s listening to music when working, but maybe uh, being unnecessarily strict. Um, it maybe have a good chat with the student and see if it is actually about, you know, them wanting to decrease the, the sound in the room. Um, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be music. They can use noise cancelling headphones or they can have, um, uh, you know, an earplug in one year so that you can still give instructions. Um, if it's more about they just want to listen to music, well, that's a, a different story. Um, but have a good chat with the, my, my suggestion is to have a good chat with the student and see what's going on um, because they might not actually be aware that they're needing uh, more input in terms of the sound um, than what they're currently getting. So the next uh, practice that I'm going to discuss is having an organised classroom. And this one's just a little bit more than having an organised classroom. It's about setting up systems that tell your students where to go and what to do. So these systems increase student independence and responsibility and help them stay on task. Applying this practice can be as simple as changing the layout of your classroom 
take a good, hard, objective look at your classroom. Is the space accessible to everyone? If each student is sitting at their desk, can you easily maneuver around them to access the whole space? Can each student see the board clearly from where they're seated? Have a think about where the items are placed in the learning environment. Does it make sense for that item to be in that place? And again, is it easy for every student to access it? Really look at the learning environment critically and decide what you need for an easily accessible environment. The other really effective tool is organizing your resources with color coding, labels or trays and explaining the setup to your students. So these blue books go in that blue folder, these red books go on that red tray, the dictionaries go back to the spot marked dictionaries. It's pretty simple stuff, but it saves a lot of time and energy. This can mean down the track that students become increasingly independent with their work. You can set up stations where students pick up their blue book, complete the work and return it to the blue folder, and then move on to the next task. This can help create a flow of work within the classroom save your voice by reducing the number of teacher prompts and give you more time to assist the students that need a little bit of extra help. So the one I'm going to talk about now is about active supervision and actively supervising your class. So active supervision not only provides teachers with valuable information about how students are responding to an activity or to classroom instruction, it helps to build relationships with your students and facilitates inclusion. So active supervision enables you to provide comments and feedback that show you have noticed their work. It also helps you to check for understanding, to provide specific praise, such as good answer, that's well set out, rather than just a general working well. As well, it helps you to provide feedback that includes direction and guidance. You are doing some good work, but I think you may have missed a step. You might want to check, let me know if you want some help, that sort of response. It's also a really good idea to think about where you position yourself in the room so you can supervise. If you need to spend a lot of time working with a group of students, position yourself so that you can still see what's going on in the room. Maybe other students who have questions, you can then acknowledge them, let them know you're aware they need help, or may even take time to stop, bring the class together and clarify some points. Active supervision shows you are interested in care. It provides insights into the sensory needs of your students. Now, I will put a caveat on that. Just be aware that some students may struggle with movement or the watching over a shoulder. So just be sensitive to this as you go through. But by working your way around the room and supporting your students, you're actually going to provide a lot more support and create better relationships. So I'll just hand back to Nick. So my final primary school foundational practice can seem like a bit of an obvious one, but when practiced regularly and in a meaningful way can truly change lives. Fostering school connectedness can positively influence student engagement and achievement, promote social and emotional development and improve student resilience and responsiveness. Research has found that the degree to which students feel valued and included in their school community is a significant predictor of mental health outcomes. Our practice on this explains how to use the WISE model, which is about using warmth and empathy to help establish respectful relationships with students, using inclusion to help students find a role in school and a sense of belonging, 
using a strength focus to identify and encourage all students' strengths, and practicing equity and fairness by supporting students' differences, removing discrimination, and promoting a set, strong sense of fairness. Even if you're already engaging with every student using this model, pause and have a think about how you could engage more meaningfully with every student. Give positive feedback when it's appropriate and make sure it's genuine. Create tasks or roles for the less connected students so that they can feel important and responsible for the classroom or school. Encourage persistence and resilience in the face of challenges, which I feel probably all students have worked on in these past difficult years. Um, get to know your students' strengths, interests and goals and support these openly. This can be simple, something as simple as seeking out a student who has a deep interest in dinosaurs and telling them about a documentary you saw. And this also goes both ways. Be open to letting students know a bit about you and what your strengths, interests and goals are. And finally, be consistent in your firm but fair teaching attitude. These seemingly little things all help a student feel more engaged in learning and like a valued part of the classroom. And I'll pass back to Libby for her final practice. Thanks, Nick. So the one that I've chosen for my final selection is assignment exemplars. So assignment exemplars provide support and guidance for students. It helps them to know and understand your expectations and the criteria against which they are being assessed. Providing the student with a model or an exemplar of an assignment enables the student to focus on creating quality content. The student's then able to focus on demonstrating what they've learned, which gives you a more accurate assessment of student progress. Exemplars are a part of the scaffolding process and can be used for a range of tasks. So when planning assignments, consider what exemplar could be included. You might like to gather examples of previously completed assignments or create a good model example yourself. Ensure that they're adequately represent the different expectations based on adjustments. Now, some tips with exemplars. Use annotations that explain how each section of the assignment or the task addresses the assessment task. This supports students to understand the assessment task and the criteria. You don't have to model the A standards only. Look at what a C looks like or why a response doesn't meet the criteria. Use clear language to explain why and how the different parts of the assignment meet or don't meet the criteria. You may also like to highlight certain sections to draw a student's attention to some of the more important elements. Use exemplars from a range of different tasks. Use exemplars that are similar to the task but not the actual task. And there are lots of examples available on the Australian Curriculum website or other sites, but you can also ask your colleagues. And now I'm going to hand back to Nicole, who is going to talk to you about behaviour. Okay, so starting out in your teaching career can be really stressful and learning how to balance and manage the different behavioural needs in your classroom can be really challenging. One big thing about inclusive practice is understanding that not every behaviour you see is a result of a choice. Let me explain further. Behaviour occurs for a reason. It's a reaction to a situation and is generally not a choice. So while it's far easier to just label the student as the naughty one, 
we truly need to look at why this behaviour occurred and what we can do to ensure it doesn't reach that stage in the future. As discussed in our sensory needs webinar, we can reframe behaviour from the student is exhibiting challenging behaviour to the student is feeling challenged. But first we need to find out what might be challenging them. We do this by looking at the antecedent. An antecedent is the thing that has led to the behavioural response. It's what happened before the behaviour. If you can identify the antecedent of the behaviour, then you can work with the student to implement strategies to help them identify the antecedent and implement supports that might help them cope and manage and potentially prevent a behaviour response. Unexpected behaviour may be related to an unmet need or contribution from sensory dysregulation, anxiety and or depression, unpredictability or changes in structure and routine, communication mismatch, difference and differences in attention and motivation. Let's look at some common reasons for behaviour. So we discussed this at length in our sensory needs webinar, which I highly recommend you check out. Uh, but diverse learners, including those on the autism spectrum, may have differences in the way that they process sensory information. With hyposensitivity, they're not getting enough sensory input and therefore may seek out sensory input or complete, completely miss the input altogether. When this happens, the input is there. However, it's not getting through to the brain to be processed and actioned by the individual. For some, they seek out input and may do things like tap all the furniture in the room so they know where everything is. They may look like they're not paying attention at all or are a bit off with the fairies. Uh, they may bump into furniture or they may be sitting or standing too close to people. When in a hypo state, the student or you as the teacher need to try and find a way to break through the barrier that is preventing the input getting in. So some ideas that can help are allowing students to use alternative seating furniture like wobble seats or gym balls, sitting or laying on the floor, cushions with nodules or bean bags, listening to music in one headphone to help focus and concentrate, allowing the use of fidgets to get sensory input to get help with concentrating and paying attention, allowing students to touch the furniture as they enter so they know where everything is, Allowing tapping quietly where possible as the feedback can help the person to communicate or process things to be able to complete the task at hand. So this could be on finger tapping on their body. And increase the brightness of the TV or projector if possible. With hypersensitivity, students may struggle to manage all the input they're receiving and that can lead to an overload or shutdown. They are processing all the senses at once and are not able to filter out the unwanted or unneeded input. Non-autistic people can filter out or ignore the additional input to focus on the task at hand. When all is well and they aren't tired, overwhelmed or stressed, they can continue processing everything. Think of it as having 15 different tabs open on your computer at once and then you start getting the spinning wheel of death that just keeps going because you are asking the computer to do too much at once. This is what it feels like for an autistic person trying to manage all the input and feedback at once. If they or you as their teacher are able to recognise that this is happening, then the input can be reduced and back to a manageable amount and a meltdown or shutdown can be avoided. Some things that can be done to help reduce the overload includes allowing wearing a hat or a hoodie to reduce the light input, 
using noise reducing earplugs or noise cancelling headphones, allowing students to listen to music. Um, and again, this can be done by allowing one headphone in so they can still hear your instructions. Having a seating plan so the students know where their seat is. Playing instrumental music in the background of the class to block out things like fans or aircon air running or a projector fan running, any other normal classroom noise like tapping or clicking pens, furniture moving against the hard floors, people talking, even the class next door, you know, the rooms that have movable walls or any noise outside um, like groundskeepers mowing or uh, birds chirping. So all of these kinds of sounds can feel amplified um, and playing things like instrument, instrumental music can help kind of lower that. Allowing different forms of seating again, so gym balls or um, cushions with nodules to sensory input, um, allowing them to sit on the floor as the seating can cause additional input if they're uncomfortable or restrictive, or even sitting on a towel. Um, Libby made a really great suggestion that in some of the hotter schools up north, um, it can just get a bit too hot and sweaty on the plastic chairs. So sit, allowing students to bring in a towel to sit on can be really helpful there. Allowing sensory tools as they provide self-regulatory behaviour. Now, sensory tools can be used in the class, but you might want to set out some boundaries with this, like explaining that they're tools, not toys. Uh, they can't make any noise so as to disturb others. And if they are distracting more than helping to concentrate, then they need to go. This is important to note, though, don't remove someone's sensory tools as a form of punishment. Sensory tools are needed for input, but they're not toys. So it's okay to establish boundaries around that. Allowing time out away from overloading input. So having a, a space that students can safely go to if they need to reduce that input. Reducing the artificial lighting where possible, such as turning lighting off, turning down audio visual equipment, turning off speakers when not in use to avoid that feedback noise or the static noise, dimming the TV or projector if possible, um, and lining up is a big one. You might have some students that don't like being in other people's space or they feel crowded out by someone being around them. So allowing them to either be at the back of the line always or enter the room first can help to alleviate that sensory input. The second reason is about uh, anxiety and depression. So the self-esteem of all students is vulnerable during adolescence. Transition to adolescence is more challenging for autistic students. The development of depression and anxiety is at its greatest in adolescence, but rates of depression for autistic students is four times higher than non-autistic peers. Common depressive symptoms for students on the spectrum include greater irritability, changes in their engagement in their specific interest, uh, an increase in repetitive behaviours, and increase in aggressive behaviours towards themselves and others, including su suicidal ideation. So what increases student anxiety? Things such as poor school connectedness, uh, the feeling of not belonging or being valued and accepted, any sensory overload when there's too much input coming in through the senses, so noise, smell, light, images, colours, temperature, textures of food, a change to an established routine when there's relief teachers or a whole of school parade or alternate program days. The student doesn't understand expectations or content, so the language used is too complex or the attention to the teacher is not established before an instruction is given and they've missed it. 
uh, unable to contextualize what's being said. All of those can lead to anxiety. Uh, failure of others to adhere to known rules or any perceived unfairness when a peer breaks a rule and the teacher's response is perhaps a bit more lenient than usual. And exclusion from by peers. Um, so the trigger or cause of the anxiety may have happened before school or in a break, um, but there can be a hangover from this throughout the day, even weeks or years later. So reason number three is um, a need for structure and predictability. So structure promotes students' ability to predict what is going to happen. Unexpected events cause stress and anxiety, which can lead to unexpected behaviours, such as attempting to exert greater control, withdrawal or meltdowns. Behavioural reactions don't occur in a vacuum. For example, interruptions to establish routines like having a supply teacher instead of their normal teacher, which is an environmental cause, can lead to anxiety, which then leads to reduced emotional regulation. So when the supply teacher asks the student to do the work provided, they may not engage or respond because they don't know who this person is and the supply teacher may not present the work or expectations in the same way that the regular teacher does. This change could be the final straw and the result for the student is a meltdown, shutdown, or could result in them leaving the classroom because their ability to regulate themselves has been lost in the wave of changes to this student's regular routine. So reason number four is a communication mismatch. There's often a discrepancy between verbal language and understanding of others' expectations of you. For example, when a student was asked, can you swim? They nodded yes and then jumped in the pool at the deep end. In actual fact, they couldn't swim and were struggling to keep their head above water until the teacher swam over and helped them to the edge of the pool. So consider your words and whether you are asking for the student's capacity, are you able to swim, or implying an intention I would like you to jump in and show me how you swim. This might seem like a student on the autism spectrum is being obstinate, but it's more likely their black and white thinking is presenting. Some students with typical language skills will still have difficulties with communication in order to connect with others. We all seek connection to others, so a student feeling like they're not being heard can be a really big reason for feeling challenged. Reason number five is attention and monotropism. So students on the autism spectrum can present with monotropism, which is an extreme focus in one or more areas of interest. This can mean they find it very difficult to control the impulse to engage with this area of interest and moving on from it can be difficult. An example of this might be when you offer five minutes of free time to students who finish their work early, but when you try to move on to the next activity, you're met with resistance. Or the student that is engaging with their work long after the bell for the next period has gone off because they are just so engrossed in it. So providing appropriate supports for student behavior relies on identification of the unmet needs and contextual factors in your classroom. Get to know your student's sensory needs by being curious about the antecedents to behavior. Is it bright lights? loud noises, tactile issues. It might be none of these, but it's worth investigating so you can be proactive about sensory needs in the classroom. Mitigate any occurrences which may increase student anxiety and need for structure. Think about your experiences either as a regular classroom teacher or as a casual supply teacher. Have you ever covered a class and someone says, miss lets me do this or that? 
Or what about coming back from a day off and finding out that one of your students was sent out of the class? As the regular teacher, have a think about what information do you need to provide to support that student when you're away? Think about specific instructions for the supply teacher. Yes, they can sit in that spot. No, they can't. Yes, they can have those sensory tools. This is their safe space. Thinking, think about informing the student that you will be absent and leave out any personalized learning plans for the supply teacher so that they have all of the information. Be aware of your language and the way that you request things. Remembering as well that students on the autism spectrum often take things in a black and white way. Could it be taken another way? Sarcasm is a really strong example of this as well. So just be aware of the way that you request things. And put some structure, uh, structures and boundaries around free time. This could be using a kitchen timer to indicate time left to engage with an interest or accumulating free time throughout the day to keep it all to the end of the day. It's all about using a kind of curious mind when it comes to behaviour and seeking out those antecedents to get an idea. We have a question from the audience about balancing the needs of one student with the whole class. Libby, did you want to, did you have any suggestions for that? It, look, it's always uh, an interesting one. I think the, the big thing is to consider what their needs are in terms of the subject that you're teaching and the environment that you are in. So you may have a student who is really struggling with the light. So looking at where they can sit within the classroom, or it could be, you know, the visual schedules is a great example. Some students really struggle with the openness that can happen, especially in the high school classroom where students are just expected to go on with the work, you know, follow on from the previous lesson. So providing, you know, the structure, remember, Yesterday, we were working on X and I want you to continue on with that. This is what success looks like. This is what a finished product looks like. So sometimes just providing those frameworks, provide a sense of security. They know what they need to do. They know what is expected of them. And then that sets up that confidence that you can have further discussions. So although it might seem like there's lots and lots of things that you need to do, you're not actually tailoring the entire class around one student. What you're doing is just refining small elements for that student that enable them to feel secure and supported so that then you can have a broader discussion about other things that you can work with and do so it's not that really big task that can seem so overwhelming for you. Yeah, I just wanted to relay that as well from a primary perspective because sometimes when we have students come in with certain sensory needs or certain diagnoses, it can seem like we suddenly have to align the world to um, you know meet the needs of this particular student um, obviously uh, we've, we've given lots of great suggestions here but remembering also that a lot of the strategies can support students who may not have a diagnosis um, I know that you know me personally I don't have any diagnoses but I kind of like to work in a little bit of a dimmer light um, so if you have students that have particular learning preferences, anything that you put in can support them as well. So it's, it's you know, looking out for those needs um, of, of all of your students, basically, and, and the different ways that they can learn. Um, and sometimes, like Libby said, it can just be really little things that can change, uh, that can make a really, really big difference in your classroom. 
Um, Libby, you also had a, a question specifically to you. What are some of the things a secondary teacher can do to create structure and consistency when the student has to move around the school and different classrooms? So one of the, the things that I talked about earlier was the colour coding. And, and I know it seems really, really quite almost obvious, and I'll talk about my my own um, experiences with my own children as well as with the other students that I've had, is that one of the things that I found was that it can be quite overwhelming. Being, you know, they've got to move from room to room, um, find different resources. So breaking down a timetable and colour coding it really makes it easy for them because you can just start with small things. Like you're only worried about what's happening before morning tea you're only worrying about what's happening between morning tea and lunch it's not the whole of the day which can be so overwhelming you know having suggesting things to them like having a, a whiteboard in their locker or a timetable inside their locker so every time they open their locker they can see oh these are the classes that I've got for the day these are the books that I need color coding their books and their resources so you know they're in a rush you grab the red you grab the blue you know, it just makes things a little bit easier. But I think those are the big, big ones that I would suggest. But I think it's also important that breaking it down so you're not getting them to worry about, you know, they've got a whole day with five classes and five rooms and they're all over the school. Just work with them. You know, we're worried about what's happening lesson one and two. And at morning tea, you can relax. And then, you know, even sometimes it may be meeting with them or being around the lockers if you, you've got that opportunity or working with some of the other teachers to be around the lockers for particular students. So that then they can just worry about, you know, lesson three or four. So it's just small chunks that they can deal with and process, not the big overwhelmingness of the day. I hope that helps. Awesome. Thanks, Libby. And I love the, the comment that we've had from the audience as well, that we might not be able to control school uh, student school connectedness, but we can definitely control class connectedness. Um, so definitely within your own environments, you, you have the control and you have the power to support your students in the best ways that you can. So I encourage you all to keep this professional learning going by registering on Inclusion Ed. Registration is completely free. And it is jam-packed with evidence-based and research-informed teaching practices, strategies, and resources to help you support your diverse learners. Check it out at inclusioned.edu.au. You can also follow our Inclusion Ed Facebook page and support your teaching community by taking part in sharing and learning in the community of practice. I'd like to thank all our listeners for joining today. I hope you found this webinar informative and insightful. Uh, we'd really love to hear your feedback. So please complete the feedback form, which should pop up in your browser after the webinar. We've also posted a link in the chat box, or you can use the QR code um, on your screen. We will leave this virtual room open for a few minutes more to let everyone finish the survey and access any links that are shared in the chat box. But thank you all so much. Um, best of luck on your teaching journey uh, and have a lovely evening. Thanks, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find out more by going to inclusioned.edu.au to access a suite of free resources to help you support diverse learners in inclusive classrooms. 
You can also join the Inclusion Ed Community of Practice Facebook group for regular posts about our practices, as well as strategies and ideas from other education professionals.